Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of The Rigged Podcast. Today, Ilias, Chris, and Jamie discuss the nearly unprecedented decision to reprimand former Attorney General employees Anne Kaczmarek, Kim Foster, and John Verner. They then discuss the 2016 Inspector General Supplemental Report and its questionable findings. They then discuss the 2016 Inspector General Supplemental Report and its questionable findings. It turns out the police destroyed or lost over 1,000 questionable Hinton Lab test samples so the Inspector General couldn't retest them. Sadly, that is just one of several disturbing revelations in the report. Enjoy episode one of season two, and as always, please subscribe and give us a review if you like what you hear. All right, so welcome to Rigged, season two, episode one. So um, there has been some news in this case, in this nearly 10-year-old case today, Um it's come out. Uh, there, there's been a ruling. Chris, why don't you take us through what uh, what has happened today? It, it actually came out on the 9th, um, but the special hearing officer that was appointed by the Board of Bar Overseers, Alan Rose, in the case of Bar Council versus Foster, Kazmarek, and uh, Werner issued a 90-some-odd-page hearing of court, finding them all in violation of the rules of professional conduct governing lawyers. So um, at some future date, they're all going to have to, um, you know, file um, sentencing more memorandums, more or less, uh, trying to convince the court um, regarding what type of discipline should be imposed, what um, mitigating and aggregating factors there are in, in each case. Uh, Kazmarek, if I'm memory certainly correctly, she was found in violation of, if not all, most uh, everything she was charged with, the different specific rules. Um, he found Foster um, grossly incompetent, and he found that Ferner um, failed in his uh, supervisory role. So um, he certainly didn't pull any punches when he was calling Kazmarek a liar. <laughs> There's passage after passage after passage where he says, uh, you know, she testified to this. Uh, I don't believe her, but also, he, you know, he clearly studied the record in um, that was before him, the transcripts from the carry or the, yeah, the carry hearings, because there were certain points when he, uh, you know, mentioned that uh, one of the three of them said this, but uh, when they testified earlier uh, in front of Judge Carey, they said something completely different. Um, so he, he really dissected um, all the transcripts that they had, um, seemingly. And Ilias, what, what do you want to add to that? Well, I, I, I guess the um, the thing to say is, I mean, we'll obviously cover this in depth. You know, the 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 conduct, the uh, the testimony, and then the outcome. Uh, but it's always interesting when lawyers are—they're uh, not on trial, obviously, but they're—it um, looks like a trial, uh, and you—it's you, sort of like watching a car accident. <clears throat> Excuse me, you're you 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 can't look, but you can't look away, and you. Um, there's a twinge of you that feels like people are getting uh, just uh, um, uh, compensation for their misdeeds. Uh, but you also say, man, I hope that never happens to me. 
So there's sort of a mix of emotions that I think a lawyer has when you witness one of these proceedings and then see a decision that really gets into detail. I mean, I don't think they 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 ducked a lot of tough issues. So I think that's fascinating and we'll get to that. Um, and I think that's an important part of this uh, story that we've been covering um, because, you know, of course, lawyers are the the puppeteers in this, right? Lawyer, the, uh, everyone else is uh, marionettes on a string and it's the lawyers who are driving this process for better or for worse. Uh, and I think we're getting a glimpse of what the worst parts can look like. Right. Now, one, one of the other things I wanted to say was um, it's sort of amazing uh, because prosecutors rarely, uh, you know, rarely get uh, disciplined. Um, I, I remember there was, a, I think, a piece by Laura uh, Bazelon, who's a law professor, um, I think she's out in California, but she did, uh, you know, a careful study of the past hundred years or so, um, if I'm remembering the right article, and, you know, there was single digit numbers of prosecutors in that whole span who ever got accused of uh, professional misconduct, much less actually found in violation. Wow. So this is a, a significant I mean that that is a statement in and of itself. Regard, I mean, as we all know, I'm sure that these are not the only people that have ever, the only prosecutors who have ever done anything wrong. It just seems like there's a a bias uh, towards prosecutors and allowing them to do whatever it takes to convict people. But um, it really kind of speaks to how egregious their behavior was in you know what they did to Luke uh, Ryan in, uh, you know, suppressing evidence, knowingly suppressing evidence. And I mean, I mean, in, in Kara's Merrick's case, she said that she, her official reason for doing it, for hiding the uh, evidence for Farrakh's drug abuse from her car was that she didn't want Audrey Mark from the OIG to have a lot of extra work to do because she just had a baby, right? Isn't that what she said in court? Well, there are two different things. So when they kept getting evidence in the early stages that, um, the that Farrick's misconduct extended back much further than they originally thought. Their office's theory was that it was just six months. Um, they kept on getting information about older and older cases, and then she wrote back to Sergeant Ballou, please don't let this get more complicated than we thought. So that's one thing. Yeah. And then the other thing was, I think she wrote an unsolicited email to Audrey Mark. Uh, I think there there might have been a news article attached, but um, she said something to the effect of Audrey, if they ask you to do this audit, say no. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime after she had, um, you know, already, uh, been exposed to not just, you know, evidence showing, you know, Ferrix misconduct extended back probably quite a while, but she had also, I, I believe learned information about the operation for the lab at least from um, the earlier state police audit. And even despite that, she wrote to Mark saying like, this is like a, a legit lab, so to speak. Nothing. Yes, like that's right. That was my favorite quote. This is a professional lab. I believe it was right. Right? Profe- <laughs> the, the, the lab that was, as we, we remember from last season, the lab that was making its standards from trash. <laughs> Um, and so she she made a ton of false assertions. But so to me, what what they're missing is they were 
to me here is it's clear that she was covering it up to to repress the extent of of the misconduct at the at the Amherst lab. She just didn't want another Hinton lab fiasco, and she was doing everything she could to suppress evidence to um, mislead people into like rather than leading an investigation into finding out, okay, have civil rights been violated here? What is actually going on? That was never her intent. Her intent was to hide any wrongdoing and to just brush it all under the rug. Well, it's it's more direct than that. I think I used the analogy last season of the seesaw. So the problem with when you have misconduct uh, committed within the government is that Every time you discover that a, a governmental actor has done something wrong that's resulted in possible convictions, you immediately, the seesaw tips, and now you have something on the other side of the seesaw called exculpatory evidence that has to go to all the uh, defendants that, whose rights may have been affected. And so the more cases you find of Sonia Farak or the more cases of Annie Dukin or the more things you discover that were lab-wide, like the use of... Um, uh, illicit standards, Jamie, that you refer to, or uh, the fact that maybe samples were being pilfered and it wasn't just Danny Dukin, th- th- those numbers uh, balloon. And so the, the, the thought of notifying defendants that you your rights may have been violated, and here's a little dossier of exculpatory evidence, um, I think it was so unpalatable that it was just easier just to suppress this information. Um, and, and, uh, you know, to me, that's uh, maybe I'm overly simplistic, but I really see that as the issue that there was a almost a spiritual rejection of the possibility that you would ever have to notify people that you may have already convicted uh, that maybe something wasn't kosher about the conviction. Right. It's it's kind of it's really, really terrifying to me that. They, that these government actors know that people's rights have been violated and their first instincts is to cover it up. That and it happens not just in the drug lab, obviously. I think, you know, we mentioned Sean Ellis last season, maybe once, uh, I don't remember, but um, it happens all the time. Chris, you probably have dealt with it um, uh, more than a few a few times. Um, but this is a real, this is a real blind spot. The system, this is sort of like golf where you have to referee yourself. Um, except that uh, there are no cameras uh, uh, behind you watching what you do necessarily, and so we can't dissect it as easily. Um, and and but uh, unlike golf, people seem to be loath to uh, uh, assess uh, stroke penalties on themselves. Which, <laughs> which again is crazy. I mean, and, and it's not like you know if they called it on themselves, like if charismatic at any time called it on herself or, you know, like just came out and was honest. I don't think any of this would happen. I don't think she would have been, you know, that this verdict wouldn't have come down. There wouldn't have been an investigation. Had she just up front said, Oh, my bad. I missed this. Blah, blah, blah. Like it's always the cover up. That's the crime. Right. Right. What's interesting is why is Kazmarek and, and why are Kazmarek Foster and Werner on the, the other side of the V? I mean, could you imagine as a prosecutor, you discover, misconduct within the investigating uh, apparatus, wouldn't you turn around and investigate the investigators? And, right. and then you're now it's you against them, right? You could be the hero. You could be the one who blew the case wide open. And that's weird to me 
that there's not a single person, uh, apparently, I mean, I'm sure there are people like this who exist in, in the prosecution side of things, but I haven't really seen too many. And it's weird that there aren't people like that because don't we, isn't that how our system works? Isn't that why we have anti-corruption units in, installed in police departments and um, why the U.S. Attorney's Office investigates, you know, the, the Massachusetts State Police? Isn't that why we have that? Well, and that's a great point. Like, where is, why isn't someone coming out from any of these places, you know, any of the, the AG's office or anywhere saying, this is disgusting. This is not who we are. This is wrong. And, you know, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm going to make sure that something like this never happens again. I have, have you guys seen any of that? Well, I mean, the closest thing that previously happened in this case at the end of the CPCS versus AG oral arguments, one of the ADAs, uh, I think his name is Pirapan, suggested at the very end that indictments might issue, but that never happened. Um <laughs> It's like, I mean, and it's all words. Like, you know, I mean, um, what's well, your... Yeah, in a limited basis, I guess you could say it happened with Annie Dukin because they went from uh, Piero and Lawler confronting the state police and saying, boy, you really got to check out this Annie Dukin character to then there being maybe by coincidence or maybe by design a retest that identified uh, one defendant. And then within not a very long span of time, they identified six defendants whose samples she tampered with. And, and I assume, but I don't know, but those six people got some form of relief. So I, you know, that would be an example of how the system is going to work. But of course, somebody who's paying attention would say, well, it's probably more than these six people. And I don't really get the sense that, that anyone really wanted to take it to the next level. And, and, and I would think the state police would be wanting to lead that effort, but um, doesn't seem to be the case. And but it's and it's not the case. And it's what bothers me, Ilias, is if you look at the e- like everything is like compartmentalized with this case. If you look at her emails, it, it, her being Annie or any chemist in that lab, how how the prosecutors talk to the chemists, there the the prosecutors are constantly, you know, calling the defense attorneys assholes and calling, you know. Um, and calling defendants scumbags and telling, um, and t- like I just went over a Sonia Farrakh email uh, for today that that was basically like the Sonia Farrakh emailing uh, an attorney, a, a DA, and the DA saying this guy deserved to go to jail and you put him in jail. Congratulations! Like that's the mentality that that cause all of this and it's still happening today. I guarantee that. I mean, I have FOIA requests in with the state police on, on TAs that I know are crazy and are very extreme and, and tell chemists that they have personal vendettas against defendants. And like, none of that has ever come out. And I think that is why these guys are so um, hell bent on covering all this stuff up because they don't want to put the blame where it really belongs. And that's on the heads of the DAs who provoked these chemists into thinking that they were doing what was right. Uh, so, do, we, do you want to turn to uh, do you want to turn to the supplemental OIG report? On uh, that note, on that yes. note. Uh, so I, I th- uh, maybe I'll do a brief tee up, or may uh, Chris, you might be in a better position, but just to give a little bit of a launching point, 
So I think last season we talked at some um, length on the original, um, I'll call it original OIG report, which was the Office of the Inspector General's uh, um, uh, tome uh, about the Hinton lab with uh, essentially no commentary on Amherst uh, and uh, and a conclusion which seems preordained that there was only uh, that uh, there was one bad actor and that was uh, a- a- Annie Dukin. So can um, we say that, a conclusion that was undermined by their own report? Yes, we could. But and we we touched on that. Uh, so um, and I think the viewers have listened to season one. They get they get that there were a lot of problems that were known to the lab many of which, or some of which were even mentioned in the OIG report, but somehow they didn't make it into the conclusion. And of course, if you ignore really um, uh, uh, embarrassing and unfortunate emails and memos, uh, it's very easy to get to that conclusion as well. Uh, And that seems to be some of what they did. They ignored, I think, a certain amount of the the email traffic. Um, But that wasn't the end of the story. That was in uh, early 2014. Uh, That was right at the beginning of the process of giving criminal defendants uh, relief uh, and 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 that process by the way is still going on but but that's really when that process uh, began to ramp up um, and there was still the issue of who was affected by Annie Dukin uh, what was the scope of uh, uh, of the malfeasance um, and what additional things did we discover in the two years since that we've been looking at and so what, what's interesting is if you look at this report, it sort of tries to do a couple of things and, and, and I'll just uh, spoil the surprise right now. It fails, I think, um, at, at, at those tasks. I mean, one of them is to suggest that they've been diligent in investigating things that have, they've learned since, and that's not really the case. Um, and then they try to figure out what the scope of the harm is using sort of um, what I call new math. Uh, and, uh, and they, uh, um, you know, an attempt to sort of make the numbers look small they actually, I think, create a more alarming picture of what was going on in the lab. So uh, maybe I'll turn it over to Chris to uh, give your thoughts before we dive in. Well, one of the things um, I wanted to talk about was that they have, they explain their methodology for retests, but uh, in speaking with a number of other attorneys, when this first came out, um, we really couldn't understand why they had they kept winnowing down the group of um, things that they could potentially retest until the total number of samples was very, very small. And um, uh, it seemed to be the case that they didn't have to eliminate all the other uh, evidence samples for retesting. And, um, you know, that seemed odd, particularly to remember Nathan Tamless from CPCS Forensics unit uh, prepared a whole report sort of like going page by page explaining the issues with the methodology things they weren't thinking about um and uh additional um comments about the particular samples that are listed Um, right that's what i call the new math where um and it's it's if we cover the actual numbers um can we put clown music? Because it's really amazing to hear the, the, this denominator just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And with like sort of a very abrupt explanation for how they just jettisoned three or 4,000 samples, you know, uh, 
Um, so don't worry about what was in those three or 4,000 samples because we, we couldn't find documentation for them or something like that. Uh, <laughs> and it, was, it was very bizarre, uh, the justification used. And they never analyzed, you know, this is, I think, the error of statistics. When you jettison some, something in statistics, you usually want to look at what you're getting rid of to see if it made a difference. So imagine if you were going to get rid of in a, in a contested election and you were like, oh, we got like 400 fishy ballots right at the close of the polls. Wouldn't you want to know what those what were in those ballots and did they change the outcome and what's the election like if they're counted and not counted? If you find out it doesn't make a difference, then who cares, right? But if you find out they're all for one candidate and it tips the, the difference, you kind of need to know that. But they just are happy to just say, nope, don't worry about what was in that box because we just excluded it. <clears throat> right. And so, so do you want me to just read the, uh, I, I could just read the first page here. So the, here's the executive summary. So it, it came out, um, supplemental report uh, was released February 2nd of 2016. And this was, I mean, when you talk about things that happen under the radar, this was one of them. And I, you know, obviously have obsessively followed this case and I didn't even hear about this. I had no idea that this came out until uh, much later. Um, and so it says, here's the executive summary. Over the course of 18 months, the uh, OIG conducted a comprehensive review of over 15,000 drug samples originally tested between 2002 and 2012 at the Forensic Drug Laboratory at uh, the William H. Hinton Laboratory Institute. The OIG was focused on certain samples that the Hinton Drug Lab had repeatedly tested with inconsistent results, but had typically only reported the final result to the parties in the corresponding criminal case. Now, let's stop right there. Like, that is total bullshit. <laughs> like, they tested a million, they, they tested things over and over and over and then only reported the results. They didn't say, hey, we, test, we tested this 10 times because it came out funky. No, they only reported the end result of the test, was, which was usually a positive result, correct? Right. So that right there, I mean, is that withholding evidence? What is that? It, Are you it is, yeah. That's absolutely withholding evidence. So right there, if I'm the OIG, I'd be like, why are they withholding evidence? That is like, and that's not just Annie Duke. That's everyone. So why is this lab withholding evidence? But that was never investigated. No one ever asked the why. Just like, why did Annie Dukin turn negative results into positive? No one ever asked why. They, they could never figure out why. And, From, and just oh, sorry to cut in. We'll uh, we'll get maybe to this point again in more detail. But also, now that the OIG knows about and, and through its testing and retesting knows about exculpatory evidence, you'd think, oh, maybe the OIG will uh, alert uh, affected parties. But no, they only notified prosecutors. So basically, they discovered a problem, and then they were like, let's just tell the group that already knew about the problem and didn't apparently fix it the first time, they'll, I'm sure they'll do a great job the second time. I actually, um, through a public records request, got a copy of the letter that they sent to one of the DA's offices regarding a uh, 2004 case. And, uh, you know, it just, I don't have it in front of you, but I think they said when they tested it, it came back negative. It didn't say, and by the way, here's the much longer history of the 
uh, of the processing at the lab that we're aware of here are the chemists involved, all this information should probably, you know, get to the defendant. No, that never comes up. And it's the same with the Kesmeric stuff. Like, this is not Kesmeric. This is not Foster. This is not Werner. This is the entire system, including, including the OIG. I'm lumping the OIG in because their leader is a former Norfolk County prosecutor and worked for the attorney general's office. So he's right. a prosecutor too. I wonder what this would have looked like if the, the head of OIG uh, or the, the author of the report was a former uh, uh, defense attorney. Right. I, and that's I wonder what that investigation would have looked like. Absolutely. So I've been trying to connect this, just an illustration of what I was saying earlier. I've been trying to connect the one 2004 sample that's mentioned in the report on page 12 with this email that we've previously discussed where Wolf, we're talking about a Sasha Haynes sample that didn't feel right. It looked like someone was acting nefariously. So like, I believe it's the same sample based upon all sorts of factors. I'm awaiting confirmation through a court, ask for a court order and um, we don't have a hearing date on it yet. But, you know, if it's the same uh, exact sample, then the letter that they sent to DA's office should have mentioned our consultants believed that this was a sample uh, that someone, it looks like a sample that had been spiked with drug standard, right? Not just when we retested it, it wasn't drugs. They should have said our own people think this was a bad actor. Yeah. And uh, obviously the, the defense is entitled to that information, not just when we retested it, it came back negative. Well, and that I... statement alone, the, the fact that they think someone was spiking samples, that nukes the entire lab because yeah. that shows motive to, to literally spike samples to convict people. That shows that chemists in that lab want people going to jail. Well, to use your terminology, it also nukes the entire uh, 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 plan of OIG, right? Right. Um, if you're trying to prove that uh, there was no misconduct and you take a bunch of samples and say, look, it's supposed to be cocaine. I tested it. So oh, cocaine. That's not the end of the story. If you believe there was spiking of samples, of course, it's going to say it's cocaine. What you need to know was, was there some point in the middle when that wasn't cocaine and and or was something done to make it more cocaine ish? I don't know if that's a word. Um, cocaine-esque and, and, and so one one way the wheels fall off the wagon is if you start blabbing to people random people uh in the community um that hey by the way this is the one that we think might have been spiked so and i don't know i haven't done a control f but i don't believe the word spiked appears in either oig report no, no. and they, they they tried to when they talked specifically about duke and doing this they said she only did it with aliquots and not drug samples. And yes, yes. And so, oh, yeah. it, but, and, but <laughs> I, I don't believe that. And I don't believe, I, I just, it, the fact that things were being spiked, it just opens up a whole hornet's nest that they never even looked at. They did right. not 
want that information. But the problem also with 2000, so pretend we're in 2014 and we're, you know, drafting the OIG supplemental report. The problem that, that they don't intend to correct is that they issued a, uh, excuse me, it's in 2016 that they do the supplemental report. Um, and, and the problem that they don't correct is that by 2016, you knew that your conclusion that there was one bad actor was not true. You knew that wasn't true. Whether you think it's just Sonia Farrakh or, or, or other people, by sometime in 2016, they knew that, uh, as Jamie, you alluded to, that people were going into the discard trash bin to get uh, standards out to remake them. And that there's some suggestion and testimony that maybe they were actually in-house manufacturing or repurposing their, their, their standards, which in violation of, of every conceivable uh, 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 protocol uh, uh, that would apply to drug testing. And, and so you, you're already like sort of pretending that you don't know all of that. Um, and, and then you are also uh, uh, dealing with an issue that's really one part of it, which is where there's samples that were tested multiple times. Uh, and then on the final time, there was a, a positive result, but you've sort of concealed the earlier ones. That's not the whole story. And, and, and the investigation, I think, ultimately... Um, it, well, our investigation, investigation of others has shown that that was only one, one, one flavor of the ice cream. There were other flavors there. And this supplemental report doesn't address those other issues. And why only 15,000? Like, where did that number come from? Like, there were, why not do every, wouldn't you do everything? So I, you mean right? the number of ones that they were, their initial criteria for what, which sample? Well, look at, those were the yeah, samples. Right. There's a problem that, sorry to jump in, but there's a, statistically, there's a problem, which is if you want to know how often the lab reported out a wrong result, then you would want to grab as large a sample that's cross-sectional across the, the, the lab as possible and retest all of those. Right? Of course. You want, that's the way you, that's the way you do it. If you want to know uh, if someone cheats on their taxes, you want to get as many of their tax returns as possible, right? You don't just say, well, let's just pick the one where the guy used, you know, crossed out a lot of different things. Uh, and that's what they did. They sort of took an already limited, artificially limited pool. That's how they got to that number. Then they did the fuzzy math to get that number kept getting bigger and smaller before they start doing massive subtractions. And, and that leads to a problem we'll get to uh, yeah, we'll so at a time. But as they go from review of over 15,000 and they end up testing, uh, you know, five or 609 samples. So that's quite a drop. But the other thing that's interesting, so they say for 551 of the 609 samples retested, they found it was the same. And so a, a person in the general public would say, oh, you know, that's pretty good. That's not a huge problem. But if you're doing a forensic review and like close to 10% of the samples that you test come back the wrong thing. Uh, That's huge. Right. That is huge. That is the problem they steered into by doing the shrinking snowball math and making that, that denominator as small as possible. What they ended up doing was uh, inadvertently either revealing a, a, a frightening uh, problem that eight to 10% of samples were reported out wrong. Um, or at, at best, they just have a vast question mark over the rest of the samples. But, but if, that's a, if that's a significant enough uh, sample size, 
that there's a concern that maybe as many as eight to ten percent of samples were incorrectly reported and people went to prison. And, yeah. and listen to this. And so for six of the samples retested, they identified the same controlled substance by one analytical method, but was were unable to confirm that finding by a secondary method as required by their testing by the lab independent labs testing protocols. So like that's crazy too. Like they 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 found it by testing one way, but then they ran another test and I, it wasn't there. I wonder like, if they mean that they're doing color tests first and then they run it through the machine because the color test can show that it's presumptively positive, but that doesn't mean it's positive. So I, right. wonder, if, uh, I wonder if that's what they mean or if they're being unclear. But um, What methodology was Hinton using? You know, like well, not the same. I mean, meaning I think NMS purports to be better, right? Um, so, um, you know, the frustrating thing, the frustrating thing in the case of my client, who's one of those samples that uh, in the fifty or so uh, that came back with a different result uh, than what was reported out, um, NMS didn't say, "Oh, this is blank," which in my case would have been excellent. I didn't need it, but it would have been great additional evidence that my client was telling the truth. Uh, that it contained um, uh, various naturally occurring fatty uh, acids um, consistent with a cashew. Um, but uh, they just say no drug substance was found. So NMS, uh, and I'm sure that's not what NMS does when they're hired uh, by uh, state uh, crime labs in an important you know, murder case. They, you know, they don't just say, yeah, we don't know what it was, right? Of course, they're going to tell you what it is. Um, but the fact that they chose the most opaque uh, uh, methodology so that we have no additional data other than the, the little sliver of data that they report to us uh, is sort of interesting. And I just want to mention that um, there's one statistic in there about sort of a larger portion of the um, samples that were retested that came back different. They did find, uh, you know, a, a bunch that had a an additional controlled substance in the sample. But, uh, you know, we, we learned that sometimes what Dukin would do was send something to the GCMS and it was the wrong drug. So she would say, you know, it's cocaine or, or it's heroin. And then Peter Pira would say, this is not bad, it's vice versa. And then when she'd send it back, it magically would have some of it in there. So if she's, uh, you know, mixing drugs into evidence samples in order to cover her tracks, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, this number of cases where they find two different substances, it's not like, oh, who cares? That wouldn't have made a difference in the defendant's cases. That could also be exculpatory. So for instance, if, uh, if it was actually, if it was an, if the sample was initially, in fact, a class B substance or a class E substance, and then in order to cover her tracks, she adds a class A substance and the cert is generating saying it's class A, you know, that could carry a, a much stiffer penalty for the defendant. Right. right. So and that's the, what, it, and to me, that's what it was all about. But factually, right. Factually, though, Chris, I mean, if you were defending one of these cases, um, if the if the government's case is this is cr crack, and we know it's crack because here's the guy who made it, right? That's the first witness. Here's the 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 buy that happened, right? And here's the second witness. And here's our chain of custody where this little crack blob moves around from building to building. 
but then somehow it reports out that it also has heroin in it. And you don't have a single witness saying, suggesting that there would be heroin in it. Uh, that's a problem. And that you're right, that would be potentially exculpatory evidence because now you could already argue to the jury, well, no one's saying there should be heroin. So why are we believing, uh, which is there, why are we believing that, that there's cocaine there as well? Um, and uh, uh, Also situations where you might have, like there are drug mules who have no idea what they're carrying. And so they just find out on the day they get the drug cert back, potentially uh, what, what they're actually going to be charged with or if there's a superseding indictment or if they have to amend the complaint so um anyway there's there's a whole bunch of different scenarios where having different classes of drugs uh you know might make no sense but a, a defendant might not be aware of that and, and may what i'm trying to say is the information was important to have right absolutely and that number of 11 samples that were retested with no findings of any drugs, right? To mm -hmm. me, that is so massive because, again, the no, according to the OIG, the average um, positive test result for that lab was 96% positive. And they didn't say that all of those 11 samples were all Andy Dukin samples. They right. In fact, they, they seemingly purposefully don't indicate who the chemists are. So right. later on in the report, they go through each individual sample and a little bit of background about the retests and uh, what they ended up doing with the information. But they don't say, for instance, uh, this is a case that had nothing to do with Andrew Right. 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 The, I think the scorecard on the 50 or so samples or the 8 to 10% that, that were different than what they were supposed to be is that, um, and, and this is close, but um, Annie Dukin was, uh, you know, if not involved in, a, in a, only a minority of samples, she certainly wasn't involved in a majority of them. And for the ones she was involved, she wasn't um, a, a, a always the primary chemist. In fact, I think uh, uh, as often or maybe more often, she was the secondary. So there's some real problems with, uh, and, and, and what, what uh, I want to just emphasize the point, Chris, you just made that suddenly the OIG, which had written this really great report that for which they, they or somebody gave them an award in 2014, where they were capable of using people's uh, uh, names, somehow suddenly in two years have forgotten that you can use someone's name in a report. So they just say, a chemist was talking to a chemist. These sound like jokes. You know, a chemist was talking to a chemist about what a chemist once said. In a bar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I guess, the, you know, the, uh, answering as a non-lawyer or asking as a non-lawyer, I would say, what, what the hell is that? What yeah. is that? What is this yeah. report that doesn't mention anyone's names? In the in the old report, they, or in the 2014 report, they called out Kate Corbett for not having for faking her resume. They called out, you know, Sonia Farrakh was in there, um, Charles Salemi. All everyone was in there. Everyone's name was in there. But here, all of a sudden, to your point, yeah. it mum is the word. Yeah, and you know that gets me thinking. So first of all, I don't remember off the top of my head, you know, which one of these included Dukin in there. Um, but I do remember we were able to figure it out shortly after the report issued and they 
there were definitely a number of samples that had nothing to do with her whatsoever. But one of the reasons why they might not have opted to include people's names is that for this sample that I was talking about earlier, D740494, we think that's the Sasha Haynes Dukin sample. And if they had, um, if they had printed the chemist's names, then they would have been admitting that they had evidence that she potentially tampered with other people's samples as a GCMS chemist, which was one of the core findings on page one of their initial report was that she did not tamper with other chemist samples when she was working in that capacity. And the court subsequently relied on that. So if they listed every single chemist's name or initials here, we would have been able to figure out you know, within a day that one of the two principal conclusions in their initial report was incorrect. Right. Right. Um, so, um, okay. So moving on in, in, they say ultimately, despite the OIG's concern about the existence of hidden drug lab samples that had undisclosed internal inconsistencies among the test results, the OIG did not find widespread testing inaccuracy. Sure. However, I would say 8%, by the way, in anything, you would call that why if you knew there was 8% voter uh, manip vote manipulation in an election, I think you'd consider that widespread, yes. especially when the margins are less than 1%. Absolutely. Widespread is a very subjective term. And if you are one of the people that was affected by this, by having a negative sample send you to prison, I would say you would think that was widespread. You would want a 0% to possibly one, you know, 0.5% um, would be, you know, the mistake ratio that that would probably be acceptable in a normal lab. But here they're just, anyways, they're 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 yeah. pulling stuff out of their butt. And However, the ones that okay, go ahead. There's no drug whatsoever. I think it's close to two percent of the samples that they retested. So I don't know from a, I mean, I think that's bad from a QC standpoint. But um, you know. Uh, Certainly not what I'd want to see coming out of a state lab. Especially when people's lives are on the line. However, in the course of retesting the OIG, this is the best part. The OIG found that the Hinton Drug Lab had classified two substances, BZP and Foxy, as Class C substances when, in fact, neither substance was illegal under Massachusetts law. That is a bold-faced lie because not only did Hitton, they found that Hinton did that, but the state police did that, and so did the Amherst lab. They all did that. Right. And we've been over the BZP stuff, but this is huge because this goes into the motivation of what these chemists were all about. They were all about sending people to prison, even when they were in possession of substances that they knew were not illegal. Right. That's crazy to me. Yeah, the the BZP part is uh, surprising. This is uh, 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 once again the chemists don't have names, so when they reference in the report that one chemist emailed another chemist to make sure that they're doing the same thing in both labs, it would have been electric if you knew at, as the reader that it was actually Annie Dukin emailing Sonia Farrakh, right? So the person who supposedly had no other motive uh, 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 other than to rush uh, and then maybe uh, fudge some samples when she got caught making sloppy mistakes 
And the other person who just had an addiction, but she didn't really have any interest in railroading innocent people uh, either, um, are emailing each other and basically saying, hey, are you railroading innocent people with BZP? Because I want to make sure that we're both doing the same level of railroading so that there's never a discrepancy if we're ever in a multi-jurisdictional investigation. Absolutely. And Peter Pirro had the same question. He, he, um, he escalated it to Julianne Nasif and Nasif said, and this is not in the report, but Julianne Nasif, who was the director of the lab, said, leave it up to the DAs. And what happened? They, they left it. I guarantee they left it up to the DAs. The DAs said, just say it's classy. Because classy, what is, what, why are they calling this classy? Because classy, you don't have to have test results for. You just look at it. Right? Right. You look at the pill. It's a yellow pill with a line through the middle, and it has a little 100 on one side and the letter D on the other side. And you look in your big book, you flip through till you find that picture and you're like, oh, it's, you know, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, uh, it's a barbiturate or whatever. You know, those are separately classed, but it's, it's something, right? Uh, and, um, and you say that that's, that's classy. It's well butrin. Uh, I have no idea. Uh, and, um, uh, and so you're right. You're not actually testing it. Um, and I think they also omitted... I believe, an email from the state police, which actually, again, can we have the clown music in the background where they try to come up with a legal rationale for why uh, uh, BZP should be uh, classy because BZP should have a prescription. And if you follow the rules and got a prescription for something that doesn't require a prescription, then it would be classy. Yeah, can you remind us uh, how we came across those state police emails? Was that in public records request, or was that found when we were going through the OIG materials that were released after Sutton? Because I, I just—that's something I've had for years. Yeah, I Jamie can... got that, and 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 just pause. I mean, you know, I, I've I've uh, I've tried to not overdo the compliments to you guys both, but. But I mean, uh, Chris, you've done extraordinary work, um, especially for uh, uh, humans uh, caught in the system. But Jamie has done extraordinary work uh, hammering uh, people with FOIA requests. So um, Jamie got that. Uh, but my my point was going to be, or my question was, so I, I think, was that only internal state police emails or were they emailing back and forth with someone at the Hinton lab? Because if the latter is the case, the OIG certainly had all the DPH emails, and you'd think after they discovered the BZP issue, they would have run a search for BZP and should have popped up. It was state police, but there is a <laughs> there is a John Verner investigation, which we can get into in another episode, Chris, that that I think we've talked about about this whole thing that uncovered that it was the state police as well. Cause when this came out, the OIG contacted the attorney general's office mm -hmm. and said, Hey, look, we found that the Hinton lab was, um, was, you know, calling class E for BZP and Foxy when they knew it wasn't class E and can you investigate this? And then John Verner turned around and sent emails out to the state police uh, lab in Maynard or Sudbury and also the Amherst lab and was like, and, or he sent, he had one of the chemists from the state police lab um, look up in their limb system to see, you know, what was qualified as class E 
and was it actually class C? And they found a ton of like hundreds of drugs that did that was done this way and including drugs by the state police. And they knew that they weren't supposed to be doing it and they did it anyway. It's crazy. This, this part of the story is absolutely bonkers and it has not been anywhere. And to Ilias's point, they have this email with the, the head of the, you know, testing for the state police, um, talking to another state police guy who was justifying it with a really ham-handed, lame explanation. Like Ilias was saying, it's it, what he was saying is essentially true that they were just like, oh, well, it should be a prescription drug. So you can just call it that. And it's no big deal. Um, and it is because it's federally scheduled. It's, it's like a weird loophole where Massachusetts, the Massachusetts law has not caught up with what the feds are, are calling illegal drugs. So it's technically legal in Massachusetts to possess it, but um, the police will just throw you in jail for anything. So they, they just come up with a justification for it. But um, it, it's wrong for the, and, and Werner calls it out in the email to the people. It's like, you aren't supposed to be doing this. This is wrong. These drugs are not um, illegal. He, he says that to the chemists and there's no reaction. There's nothing. There's not, oh, oh, okay, well, we should contact the defense attorneys and tell them that these people are in jail for possessing drugs that aren't illegal. Like that's never said once. Yeah. So like the penalties for a class E are, are, you know, definitely not as steep, but there can be collateral consequences. So I, I don't know this for a fact, but it, if it's federally scheduled, and I know that if you have a drug conviction and you have federal housing assistance, you can lose it sure that even if, you know, state police or prosecutors are thinking, well, this, these people aren't really going to suffer as a result of this, it's, you know, they could lose their home potentially. Right. Um, it's, and, and also, you know, like you lose your home, you lose any federal benefits. If they were out because of COVID, they can't claim benefits that people were getting. You know, like it, it creates a nightmare scenario that removes any kind of safety net underneath these people so that they, what do they do? They go back and commit crimes. They need money. You know, they have to live. So it perpetuates this stuff. So um, do you want me to read like the background to this report that they have in here from the OIGs? To, they, they give a background of the 2014 uh, drug lab report, but we've kind of covered that, right? Whatever you want to do. I mean, we can go into methodology. We can start. Yeah, let's, we, we can talk the methodology. So as explained in, in the OIG's 2014 drug lab report, the drug lab typically failed to document when a sample had been tested multiple times in the GCMS. That is insane right there. As a result, the OIG... So wait a minute. So if they failed to document it, how do they even know that these were like... I guess were these just the ones that were documented? So what would happen? What they're saying with documentation is that there was never, uh, you know, a um, there was never the sort of paperwork that um, is in a lab packet um, it was being produced to defendants. So they might be able to tell um, by scanning through all of the GCMS paperwork, like all the machine printouts that a sample number was run, you know, August 1st, again, August 7th, again, August 8th, you know, however many times. So they might take a look at that and then pull the, the lab packet 
and then find out that there's no paperwork in there associated with the first several runs. That's, that's what they mean, I believe. Okay. All right. So as a result, the OIG relied on its uh, e-discovery experts, Navigant Consulting, uh, to generate a list of multi-run samples from the electronic data stored on the GCMS instruments. The OIG's review of the multi-run samples was wide in scope and included the laboratory work of all the chemists who worked in the drug lab between 2002 and 2012, as well as all classes of controlled substances that the drug lab had tested. At the time the OIG released its drug lab report, Navigant had provided the OIG with a list of 9,483 multi-run samples. And two, so they only did this for Hinton, though, right? They didn't do it for Amherst. Well, they, I believe so. Um, they did have those overflow samples that were from, sent from Hinton to Amherst. And I'm not really, I don't think they would have had that data because that would have been on the GCMS machines back in Amherst if they were storing it at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that that would have consisted of any of those samples. In March 2014, however, the OIG issued its report. Uh, Navigant notified the OIG that it had discovered 12,160 more potential multi-run samples. Wow. Navigant's detection in March 2014 of additional potential multi-run samples was due mainly to its discovery of non-electronic scanned hard copy GCMS reports in the Navigant database, which suggested the existence of additional GCMS runs for samples previously understood to have been run only one time. The OIG determined that 10,822 of, the, of these 12,000 potential multi-run samples were not truly multi-run samples, but rather were, for example, duplicate copies of the same MS reports, uh, rep Reports of preliminary testing of the gas, uh, the GC instrument, instances in which the GCMS was run overnight, creating the appearance of testing on two separate dates, typographical errors on the GCMS reports, a misread by Navigant computer search tool of the number of scanned PDF file, or an external request for a retest. Can I stop you right there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that sounds like nothing, right? What, what uh, those words uh, somehow um, make you want to uh, become um, horizontal and, and rest your eyes, uh, and therefore you're not actually learning what what they learned, right? That reference to hard copies, uh, what that means is, and there's only two ways this happens that I know of. And both are troubling and both should have been investigated and both were not investigated. Um, other than a duplicate, right? That would mean someone printed out a computer file and you have a duplicate of a paper and the computer. So let's set that aside. What they're saying is there was a non-zero number of times that somebody either ran a sample through the GCMS and there's no electronic record for it. And all we have is a paper record. That is very alarming and concerning. And we don't know how many times that, that happened. Um, or whether that happened, but they talk about it and they should have, the next sentence should be what well, we check that out. And here's, here's the math on that. The other references to uh, a, a GC machine, that is the standalone GC. This is something we mentioned a couple of times last year. I don't think the, the listener understands what this is. This is a machine that serves no 
real purpose, no legitimate purpose, according to the workflow at the lab, because it's not a GCMS. It doesn't generate an electric, electronic file. It can't lead to a drug cert by itself. Um, and, and there's no part of the protocol that's supposed to rely on the use of it that I'm aware of. Chris, you may correct me if I'm wrong. But what we know empirically is when they had a sample and they didn't know what it was, and even Annie Dukin, who was supposedly rushing so, so fast that she was dry labbing, not only was she not dry labbing, she was stuffing samples into the standalone GC to see what they were. And it will tell you, this is ibuprofen, this is peanut butter, this is whatever. It'll tell you what it is. And so the, the, the standalone GC should essentially, uh, uh, if it has a legitimate purpose, should end the testing if it's negative. But that didn't happen in the case of my client. Um, and what we find is that a lot of these tests that were multi-run were because there was an earlier GC sample. But I don't believe anybody in, on the defense side was ever give, was told about the standalone GC or given these results, at least on a widespread uh, basis. So there's this machine that's being used, and OIG doesn't even talk about it. Right. I mean, I want. I'm trying to think of a like a legitimate purpose. So maybe if they're doing the color test, they can't. They're getting really weird results, and uh, they're trying to figure out what standards to run on the GCMS so they don't waste standards. You know, that could potentially uh, be you know uh, uh, something that they were doing. But if you're again. You, you want all the documentation of all the um, the testing that was done, and it doesn't seem to have been provided. Right. But there were potentially two, at least 2,000 times that something was that they know about where something was run through either the standalone GC or, for whatever reason, there's a, a printout of a file that the electronic version doesn't exist anymore. That's a, that's a large and unsettling number. That for what shouldn't, according to the testimony that juries heard, uh, the, the, an operation that doesn't exist. So that's, to, to me, very strange. Absolutely. And it, it leads to something else, though, Elias. It's, it's this agenda that they have that only multiple run tests um, could have had something potentially wrong with it. Those are the only things that they wanted to retest. To me... With the evidence that they found with the lack of training, the lack of documentation, all of these lacking, um, you know, quality standards within the lab, every single test in that lab is suspect. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was going to say, so like the initial idea was a good one. It makes sense. But when they, I don't know how to say this, but maybe when they discovered new vectors for um, misconduct or malfeasance, they should have explored those, right? Yes. As I mentioned earlier, the missing powder sheets are an indication uh, potentially of fraud. Absolutely. Uh, found that out, it seemed like, I mean, they mentioned powder sheets below, and we can talk about that in a second, but it doesn't seem like there was a second effort aside from what they were doing here to go back through all the samples to see where there was a large number of powder sheets missing. And then, uh, you know, that's just one example of, you know, a different type of fraud that could be taking place, which there is evidence available for you to review when they don't review it. And the whole thing with the two chemist system happening, like that happened for a reason. Why did that happen? They used to only have one chemist, but then there was a massive screw up where, you know, something was tested as cocaine when it was actually heroin. 
and they changed their entire way testing methodology. And no one ever investigated why or, you know, why take such a drastic step? Clearly something dramatic happened. And there was no real investigation as to what that was or if there was anything else like that or, you know, what could have possibly gone into that. In my opinion, you have to retest everything that was done there. Because, I mean, if they're not training their people properly and you have people that if you look at the testing statistics, which they all did, and you see that people are testing way above what you know, the supervisor of the lab said was possible to test in a month, like half the lab was, then you retest, you, you have to think everything is suspect, not just the limited number of tests that were done on multi-runs. Yeah, I mean, at some point, money becomes a legitimate concern, right? Sure. Like the OIG isn't, you know, doesn't have endless amounts of funds, but then like the trade-off is, you know, as a society, if we understand that, you know, defendants are, entitled to exculpatory information and because of budget reasons, you know, uh, we don't want to provide it to them or, or go through the hassle of, of trying to discover it. Then on the flip side, you, you, you can't keep these convictions or, um, you can't keep charging so many people with drug offenses. If you don't want to do the work that the constitution would seemingly require. Right. So that's when you that's when you recommend say hey either we spend a hundred million dollars retesting all this or however much it would cost millions of dollars or we just dismiss all these cases because this lab was a disaster. I mean that's the only way that to me is the only solution. I've been saying it over and over, and not just for the the limited Annie Dukin years. It's for the entire time that this lab existed because these policies and processes were not new when Annie Duke had started there in 2003. Um, so, uh, so they go into the testing methodology and they, they start talking about this. I, I love this here. The OIG also removed from its list 1,029 samples that police departments reported either as one being destroyed in the ordinary course pursuant to court orders obtained in accordance with blah, 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 uh, prior to the Massachusetts investigation into Dukin, and two, had already been retested by the Mass State Police, or three, were otherwise unavailable for retesting. And like, what does otherwise unavailable mean? So oh, there's a footnote. Hold on. Couldn't find it. It means they, the guy in the evidence room looked and couldn't find it. For a variety of reasons, including database conversions and record-keeping errors, certain police departments could not locate all of the samples that the OIG requested be sent for retesting. Or if they went to Springfield... <laughs> those those were sold back on the street by an evidence officer. Right. Or if they so, went to Braintree, they were in some woman's, you know, apartment. So can we just pause? Because there's actually two really troubling aspects. I'm glad that you hit that. Um, one, if you went to prison for a drug offense that you believe maintain you didn't do, and you found out after you were convicted that your sample had been tested multiple times. Would you be relieved when you found out that they're like, oh, we couldn't retest it because the police had destroyed it or Joe in the evidence room just couldn't find it? So I'm sure you're satisfied with that answer, right? No. Absolutely. And, and, and by the way, that's just as consistent, if not more consistent with some sort of 
um, egregious government misconduct that the sample just doesn't seem to turn up. Um, that so that's really troubling too. The one they don't retest anything that the state police already tested. Why is that against some rule? Is there some rule that you can't impeach another lab that's ongoing? That's Dude, crazy to me. They should have said, oh, "Thank you for testing it. We'll have that now, and we'll test it." And, and of course, they, God forbid that they create a, an error, a known error rate for the state police lab. This is the ongoing thing where they set up the state police lab as the God lab, as the lab that has never erred. And I guarantee that that is total and complete bullshit. The state police, I, I do not trust anything that comes out of that state police lab. I'm sorry, they might have all the SOPs in the world. They might dot their I's and cross their T's. The motive is still the same. The motive is to convict. They are the prosecutors. They work for the prosecution. They, they still have the same exact motive. In fact, it's even worse because they're the police. They're the state police that arrest people. So you think, it's, you think your evidence going to that lab, you think it's going to come out as anything but, but uh, what the police exact say it is? I, and then Ilias knows I FOIA'd these people and asked, these people being the state police crime lab, and I asked for what the percentage of positive results was for their testing in a, a given year. And they said that they do not keep those statistics or results. Which to me seems crazy because, you know, the FBI, I think, uh, claims to keep track of that. Um, it's sort of important to know. Um, I've seen varying figures, but somewhere between 5 to 10% of seized samples are generally considered um, not drugs, either because they're counterfeit or there's a mistake in identification. Um, right. And, 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 and that's important. I mean, that has to do with, you know, how effective law enforcement is. That has to do with, um, you know, are you arresting the right people for the right crimes? Um, so it's one of those like sort of nice to know things. Uh, it's nice to know uh, how often something comes through your lab that's not illegal. Um, and if you're accurately testing, then you're going to have uh, uh, some number of samples that come back negative, um, despite, you know, a, a, a good faith effort to test it. Um, Hinton seems like they didn't really like getting too many negatives. And so a lot of this retesting seems to be to avoid the possibility that you churn out negative results. Uh, and Jamie, that's your point. That seems like it's a, there's a vendetta or motive, uh, improper motive at play. Um, and so that uh, I think this type of information would be very critical to an uh, open, uh, open and honest investigation, because you really need to know, is this data just random? Is this just mistake or is there something more sinister at play? I mean, if you put that, you have to look side by side with the percentage that of the positive, like you were saying, the percentage of positive um, test results in the lab. And all of the emails from literally every chemist in that lab saying that defense attorneys were assholes and that they didn't want to go to court and that all they wanted to do was for defendants to accept plea deals and stipulate to the results of their testing. That's all they wanted. And I'm sure if they're like, oh, this guy's not going to stipulate, fuck him. I'm going to, you know, like, I mean, some of it's human nature. These people were under the gun. These people were, you know, constantly being berated and, you know, underpaid, underfunded. They were bitter. It was a hostile work environment for sure. And I think the, the, the ones that got kicked were the easiest ones to do, which were the scumbag defendants. I mean, Andy Dukin, I've made the point over and over. 
she was not a rogue chemist sitting in a corner. She was the white knight of the Massachusetts criminal justice system for almost a decade, where including U.S. attorney's offices were praising her to the ceiling, saying what an amazing job this person did, how excellent she was in court. And, you know, all of that stuff. And it's all because she gave them the results they wanted at all times. So, oh, finally, you'll, you'll like this, um, Ilias. Finally, the OIG removed 47 steroid samples from the retest list after determining that it was uh, and that its initial findings of inconsistency among the hidden dr drug lab testing was an error. That is, the OIG initially understood there to be inconsistencies between the primary chemist preliminary steroid finding and the confirmatory chemist finding. The OIG learned, however, that the 47 samples removed from the list, the preliminary findings were based solely on the labeling of the steroid container and not on chemical testing. How is that not dry labbing? That's dry labbing, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and it's not any different than they were probably doing with the identification of class E. I mean, it's Absolutely. literally just like reading something, which I don't know. You don't need to be a chemist to to know how to read something. And that was uh, the that was the marijuana test too. They were just looking in a microscope at hairs on the pot plants, right? And right. therefore, the initial finding was actually unknown, as opposed to analytical finding of, for example, you know, whatever steroid. Because so it's, all the, oh, go ahead. Well, it's weird to me that so therefore their conclusion is you don't retest. If it were me, I would say the original test was unknown. Therefore, you do retest. It's this is this is where the, I, uh, this new math just drives me crazy because every time they have other than the ones you can't retest, I get that you can't retest it. Although I think it would be good to do an investigation on why you can't retest certain samples to see if drug uh, 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 um, uh, police uh, uh, drug units or evidence um, offices are actually following the law uh, and proper chain of custody and maintaining proper records. That that would be an interesting investigation, um, especially in light of things that have come out and we'll cover more later in this, in this season. Um, but, but even, you know, just, just uh, 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 wondering why, when you have something that you admit part is partially unknown, why you, your first instinct is not, let's just retest it. So everybody knows. Then uh, <laughs> how about this paragraph uh, before the steroid one where it talks about, uh, it describes uh, 841 samples that they removed from the retest list after determining the samples had not resulted in adverse disposition for <laughs> any criminal defendants. Well, okay, uh, I guess that saves money, but uh, you, it doesn't contribute anything to your understanding of the error rate, right? There's no reason why they couldn't have tested that nearly, you know, close to 900 samples to figure out if, you know, the error rate was, you know, larger than, you know, the nine to 10% that we were talking about previously. Right. Right. And so, and, oh, go ahead, Chris. They also mentioned that, um, you know, they include samples that were involved in controlled buys, but that's potentially problematic because, uh, you know, the way that they were keeping tabs on cases was not very good, as we previously discussed. 
in the hidden drug lab evidence database. And so sometime uh, it will be coded as something like uh, PC by, or it'll be under some, um, uh, the name of some operation. And, uh, you know, that could involve multiple different defendants. And it's unclear to me what they did in order to, you know, rule out those as, you know, samples that didn't result in adverse dispositions because the existence of a controlled buy can make its way into a, a trial, you know, it's, it's part of the evidence leading up to what happened. Um, and, uh, you know, they could have retested those to determine if there was an issue in, in multiple cases. Right. I think they want to avoid uh, any an examination of those cases because, um, as we now know, uh, uh, controlled buys are one uh, avenue that information ends up in uh, in affidavits that that end up in warrants uh, that end up in people um, hopefully uh, not getting injured uh, during some sort of raid, but maybe just uh, peacefully arrested. Uh, but nevertheless, they can be prosecuted, and sometimes that information is what informs the the entire investigation. So if there's a if there's some dis, you know basic discrepancies there. It makes you sort of wonder, you know, should that case be re-examined? And nobody wants to do that. So I think it's best uh, to just uh, uh, let sleeping dogs lie uh, and don't pull on any threads uh, that you might regret later. Right. And so for the reasons described above, the number of samples to be retested decreased from 3,980 to 645. Right. I mean, right. that is an effing joke. That is a joke. Right. This is and, and so th 739 samples were, um, were removed where the true narc finding was consistent with the drug lab find with the drug labs finding. And you guys, so can you describe what the true narc is? That's like a little, uh, it's a handheld device that uses Rayman spectroscopy. Um, and it's, uh, it's not enough to just do that in order to get the sample admitted in court, but it's used as a field test now. It's garbage. And, and just because the true narc matched what the, the hint lab said, like to me, that, that means nothing. Well, I, I would be okay. I would be okay if, there was a printout that had, you know, machine specs, calibration, exactly. name of operator, not name of operator, ambient temperature, uh, time of run, <laughs> you know, some sort of report that some other expert could actually look at. But here I get the sort of the feeling that they're like, hey, Joey just true narked it and it came back, you know, fine. And I don't know how uh, how good that is uh, in in a case like this. I feel like there should have been some record keeping generated, and maybe there is, but I haven't seen it. Uh, and Chris, I don't know if you have, but yeah. And it's sort of unclear to me. The uh, they talk about how they removed residues from the list on the theory that um, the entire sample could have been consumed during the initial testing, so they didn't bother. But you know, it's un the way they structured these several paragraphs, it's somewhat unclear to me if those were actually 
Trunark retested or those failed the retest, but they were just like, oh, that doesn't really matter because it could have been small anyway. Like, I don't know. There's not enough information in that paragraph to explain oh, exactly what It seems like it was excluded, but maybe... Um, I do know that on occasion they sent samples to NMS for retesting uh, that they didn't mean to send because they were um, residue. And NMS came back and said, it, uh, there's no drugs found. And they're like, no, but you weren't supposed to test that. Um, and so I think they were very scared of residue. Um, but what I find really funny about that is, is uh, the, the Hinton and Amherst labs, they weren't scared about testing residue. So people have probably spent time in prison for possessing residue. And so, you know, they didn't, they didn't verify the assumption that, that there had been a larger quantum of drugs that had been all but expended leaving a residue in testing. You'd have to know what, was, what, what the person was yeah. arrested with. <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like they looked as to what the sample was coded as in the evidence database. They said, oh, it's a residue, take it off the list. That's how I'm reading this. Um, so that's why they say the entire sample could have been consumed. Well, why don't you try and actually determine that that's the case? Doesn't It's unclear from the paragraph, it, the way it's written exactly what they're doing, but there's a reading that that is just they didn't attempt to pretest it, which is problematic to me. And just to be clear for the listener, I mean, I'm not a, I don't do criminal defense work, but Residue is 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 something that is almost uh, probably not even visible to the naked eye. So therefore, you're arrested, let's say, and in your you're wearing your your uh, your friend's jacket, let's say, because uh, you're cold, and you're arrested, and they they frisk you for officer safety, and in the in your pocket they find a little pipe, and you're like, I don't I don't know what that pipe is. There's nothing in it, but they take it over to the lab and they say, oh, there was residue of you know marijuana, cocaine, whatever. And now you you uh, suddenly are guilty of a major drug offense. So I think residues are not insignificant. And, and I don't think if Hinton had a policy of not testing residues, I'd be okay with the OIG not testing residues. But I haven't heard that. I believe it was the opposite. I think they did test residues. Yeah, and they also sort of run the spectrum because there could be a whole bunch of junk at the end of the pipe. So my point was that the way they're writing this, it sounds like they just said, oh, it's residue, forget it, not let's actually examine it to see if it can be retested. Right, right. All right, so here, they're going to go into the 11 samples that they found to not have anything, right? Um, so it's hidden sample number B08-08323. With respect to this sample, the drug lab paperwork indicates that on January 16th of 2009, the primary chemist was unable to identify a gray chunky substance after four color tests and a GC analysis. Confirmatory chemists analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS, first on the 23rd of January, 2009, and again on the 28th, both times finding the presence of cocaine. <laughs> Go figure. On the 29th, on 29 um, of January of 2009, the Hinton Drug Lab chemist certified that the sample contained cocaine. When, M when NMS retested the sample, it found no findings of a controlled substance. And the OIG 
uh, notified the Suffolk County District's Attorney's Office of this discrepancy, and they promptly took that information and threw it in the garbage. That, well, that was not, the last part was me at the Well, I'm not sure what they did with it, but, um, you know, this one, one thing that could be happening here is maybe there is something wrong with the machines on the days that it was run, or maybe there's something wrong, you know, that there could be a recurring problem. And in, I'm not sure that they looked at, you know, everything that went on that day. I just don't know. But uh, it, it just is strikingly odd that their machines would come up twice with the finding of cocaine when it's not actually anything. So right. was that someone spiking a sample? Is that, uh, you know, a problem with the machine that was going on for a week? Like, is there anything else you can tell us about what was happening here? Absolutely. And and I think, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but, um, uh, you know, doesn't it begin with that the primary chemist was unable to identify what that was, right, after color tests? Um, and what's not said is who's that primary chemist? So this happens to be an Annie Dukin uh, primary chemist case, um, but there's a problem. And I bet this is maybe where they started to backspace and, and delete names uh, in the report when they were writing it. Well, if Annie Dukin couldn't figure out after actually doing color tests what that was, that undercuts your dry labbing theory. Absolutely. You know, so the fact that it, so on one hand, yes, it's her. That's important to know. I mean, we'll get to other cases where it wasn't just her, but she, this is not a dry labbing case. Right. She, if, if it's a dry lab, why are they retesting it a million times? Like, I mean, obviously they're just marking it as cocaine and moving on with their life. It could also be a, a situation where something is spiked on purpose. Um, you know, that would explain why it's cocaine on both runs, but it's not anything when the independent lab takes it or tests it. Right. And would also be consistent with it not being identifiable after actually doing color tests. Right. All right. So Hinton sample uh, B08-17-174. Um, the drug lab paperwork indicates that on February 4th, 2009, just like a couple days later, right, the primary chemist preliminary, preliminarily identified an off-white chunky substance as containing cocaine. This finding was based on one week positive color test and two positive microcrystalline tests. Confirmatory chemists analyzed the substance twice on the GCMS, first on February 11th, finding no integrated peaks, and again on February 12th, finding the presence of cocaine. On February 18th, the Hinton drug lab chemist certified that the sample contained cocaine. <laughs> like, how? After all that testing, like, inconclusive spikes, whatever. Oh, yeah, it's cocaine. Yep. Let me talk about this one, because this is my client. So um, the first test, and I think she did do the spot tests, because she said they were weak. And she actually had a system of notation with pluses and minuses. And she could, you know, double plus meant it was pretty strong. Single plus could mean it was not as strong. And, you know, minus could mean it was weak uh, or, or, or in, you know, um, uh, uh, inconclusive. Um, so I think she probably did do the, the spot tests. Um, but then it appears that there was this, the use of the standalone GC was done. And I believe that that the standalone GC was done when you had either a negative spot test 
and you wanted to know what the heck this thing was, or on occasion, you thought you knew that it wasn't drugs, but you really just wanted to characterize it. Uh, and so she ran the, the GC. But what's interesting is that result is never, never ends up in a, that I know of in a discovery packet. And certainly if it's exculpatory, it was never produced. So that's a, a total in-house um, sort of a, a super secret test that they were doing um, for reasons that we don't fully understand, but they weren't dry labbing. Uh, and and it, it, it was inconsistent with rushing because I, I assume a standalone GC takes just as much time to run as a, uh, as you know, the GC part of any other test. So, you know, that's, it's cumbersome. Um, and so why are they even using this? Uh, uh, and and uh, the no integrated peaks, what was interesting was the first time it was run, there was a, 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 a suggestion that there might be this, this nut uh, acid, uh, fatty acid. And then when it was run again, there is now superimposed a more clear cocaine spike over a peak over that. That suggests that that sample was spiked because it still had under underlying the nut um, substance. And I think that even reported out actually uh, some form of fatty acid. So, so that uh, uh, alone should have, I think, prompted some closer scrutiny as to what happened because that, uh, you know, that uh, even though that's consistent with the Annie Duke and spiking thing, it's not consistent with the, the dry labbing. And nowhere in this report are they saying that these samples were spiked. They're not saying like how this stuff happened, you know? Right. Um, Other than we just heard a phrase, unhelpful phrase that sometimes I made a negative or positive, which I don't even know what that means. But uh. <laughs> And again, why would she do that? That makes zero sense to do. Like on what planet does that make sense for a chemist to do that? Like right. that is, that's what the real, it's like, People just kind of take that as face value that she's turning negatives to positive. It's like, that's a crime. Why would you commit a crime? The and only- the other thing that, that needs to be mentioned is that it's the same, at least in this case, it's the same secondary chemist who's, re- who's retesting. And so- Who was that? You know, I'm sorry? Who was that? Do you remember? It was Daniel Renchkowski in this case. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure you're busy and all these samples look the same. But it wasn't like it was in sequence. It was a low, a, a, a dramatically lower number than the samples you just did. And you'd look back at your previous uh, sample sheet and say, hey, I already did this sample. Why am I doing it again? And Renchkowski and others testified that on occasion they, quote, gave Duke in returns. And that was an, seems to have been an accepted practice to have returns. So there's a real problem that I have, which is under this theory we pretend that the second chemist is is sort of a lobotomized automaton who doesn't really care. Why is this person not saying, hey, I already tested this. Why are you bringing it back? It's negative, right? Notify the prosecutor. It's negative. Tell, you know, Timmy, he can go free. No, that's not what happens. You you say, take it back and go get me a positive cocaine. And then it comes back and you're like, oh, finally. And then you you certify. So I think this idea that, that Annie Dukin was the sole bad actor is really... Um, uh, uh, imaginatively naive, uh, given that there was somebody else actually looking over the, these test results. So, um, so here's the next sample D seven four zero four ninety four. The drug lab paperwork indicates that on October nineteenth two thousand and four, the primary chemist preliminary ident- preliminarily identified a white powder substance as contain- as containing cocaine 
This finding was based on a weak positive color test, two positive microcrystalline tests, and a GC analysis that indicated the presence of cocaine. Confirmatory chemists analyzed the substance five times on the GCMS. The first time on October 21st, 2004, the confirmatory chemist found an indication of the presence of cocaine. So why wouldn't they just stop right there? Why is this continuing? The second time on October 26, 2004, the confirmatory chemist found an indication of the presence of cocaine. The third time on October 27, 2004, the confirmatory chemist found no controlled substances. What? The fourth time, on October 27, 2004, the confirmatory chemist found a weak indication of the presence of cocaine. And, and by the way, it, it's important to mention this before I go into the fifth time, but this was a lab that had a backlog of 10,000 samples, right? Right. Why now the you know why. are they doing this? Now you know why, right? Right. They're, they're testing it. Oh my God, the fifth time on October 28th, 2004, um, right after the Red Sox won the World Series, the confirmatory chemist found a strong indication of the presence of cocaine. That is a spike, my friends, right? On November 1st, Hinton Drug Labs certified that that was cocaine. So that is a spiking of a sample. Right. So we're, we're trying to figure out, again, I mentioned this earlier, um, I've got a pending, pending motion in Middlesex Superior Court um, seeking additional records from the OIG to confirm that this sample is the one referred to in that email we had been discussing. But in speaking with people over at CPCS, they thought this was the sample because the, the chemists are in the right. Um, well, it's a, it's a Sasha Haynes. Annie Dukin sample where Sasha Haynes is the primary chemist and Dukin is the secondary and it's the right time frame um, among other things. And then uh, I just ordered the, the, I just received the lab packet from DPH um, and it, it confirms that Michael Lawler was uh, one of the chemists who was in there before. So um in this email, professor. That I, right. So I've read segments of this before, but again, this is an, this is OIG number zero two zero nine eight three. It's a message from Christina Medina, one of the associate general counsel uh, attorneys over at the OIG, to Audrey Mark, the general counsel. Uh, and it's I just got off the phone with Jack Mario. He understand Mike's he understands Mike's. Uh, Wolf's observation of the Sasha Haynes cocaine sample we've been discussing, the sample, quote, doesn't feel right. He cannot prove anything with the information that he has, but he thinks it's weird and unlikely that the chemist was able to ultimately clean up the sample uh, that nicely, even with an extraction. He says there are cocaine ions in the first several GCMS runs, and that's, I guess that's what they're referring to in the paragraph. So what that means, I believe, is some of the chemical components of cocaine were detectable, but either not a sufficient quality or not all of the ions. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but um, he says, uh, I can see uh, chemists saying something like, I see cocaine, I know it's there, let's get this confirmed already. However, 
He could also see how this looks like a chemist acting nefariously and helping the sample along by spiking it. And then he talks about how it could be spiked with a, uh, a drug standard. So, you know, I, I've been hammering this uh, over and over again, but I can't emphasize it enough. You know, this particular sample it appears very strongly that it was spiked because, uh, you know, <laughs> There, there were the last one was a nearly a perfect peak, and when they sent it to the independent lab, it came back as nothing. So it would that's that's as good as you can get as far as confirmation that something's been spiked. Um, and they they don't correct their report. They don't say we now actually have evidence to suggest either there was another bad actor, potentially Sasha Haynes, or. Dukin is spiking other chemist samples when she's working the GCMS machine. Which so they again, said she wasn't doing. Right. And so that may be one particular reason why they didn't list chemist names in this document. Because we, right. like I said, we would have figured it out in a day. So either way, with this one case, the OIG is screwed. But again, there is zero accountability. And you are, thank God, are pushing this, Chris. You're doing tremendous work at pushing this. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to take a pause right here. Uh, we're going to come back and finish off this report and get into the BZP stuff for the next episode. But this has been a great start to the second season. Thanks, guys, for um, for taking the time. We need to give to our families <laughs> before they before they string us up right. and spike our samples and send us to jail. So, um, but yeah, we will be back just as soon as we can. So thank you, Ilias. Thank you, Chris. And uh, thanks as always for listening. Thank you for listening to the Rick Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so that you can get the latest episodes right when they come out.